I find it uh, very, very uh, satisfying to reinvestigate these classic cases to find an explanation for each case. Because if you cut away all those cases with conventional explanation, the residue you have left, the quality of these collectively will increase as you, as you cut away all those which are not UFOs, really. Ladies and gentlemen, we know And now, ladies and gentlemen, Banal of America Audio, with your host, Tim Banal. What is going on, my friends? This is Tim Banal of BanalAmerica.com, with another edition of BOA Audio Season 5. This week on the program, we have an enlightening and illuminating episode for you, as you may have surmised from the intro mix here to this week's episode, it is time for another international ufology edition of BOA Audio. This time around, we're traveling back to Scandinavia, more specifically the country of Norway, for a conversation with Ola Jona Brenna, director of UFO Norway, in his first ever American radio interview. I can almost guarantee that this is going to be an episode where you're going to learn quite a bit of new information because Ola Jona Brenner brings the goods on Norwegian ufology in a big way. Let me give you a thumbnail look at what we're going to be talking about here in this conversation. We're going to be discussing first some key cases in Norwegian UFO history, such as the ghost rocket slash ghost flyer waves, the 1952 Spitsbergen UFO crash retrieval, the infamous Bjornolf film of 1954, the 1972 UFO trace cases in Namsenfjorden, the early 1980s Hesselden UFO wave and the subsequent Hesselden project put together by UFO Norway and UFO Sweden, and a fascinating close encounter case from 1995, which includes some insight into regression therapy that was put together by UFO Norway with the key witnesses to this UFO event slash close encounter. That stuff is riveting, my friends. You're definitely going to want to stick around for that portion of the interview. In addition to the discussion on key cases, we're also going to cover the evolution of UFO studies in Norway, another really intriguing part of this conversation. I was completely blown away by the twists and turns of the history of ufology in Norway. Just amazing stuff there from Ola Jona Brenna. In addition to all that, we're going to hear about the Norwegian military and government and their stance on UFOs, as well as how the media coverage of the phenomenon has evolved over the years, and what the general public seems to think about the UFO enigma in contemporary times. It truly is a rare glimpse across the Atlantic at a whole different world of UFO studies with our guest Ola Jona Brenna appearing for the first time ever on American radio, right here on BOA Audio. I will caution you folks who have written to me in the past regarding the international guests. I get emails sometimes from people who say they couldn't tune in to the international guests for long because the accents start to drive them a little crazy. 
Ola definitely does have an accent, but you get used to it after the first five or ten minutes. So that's what I'm going to try and push here and emphasize to all you great folks out there who are sampling this interview right now. Stick with it, because the further you get into it, the more compelling the conversation becomes with Ola Yona Brenna. And after a few minutes, it sounds like you're listening to an old friend. So stick with it, be patient, and reap the rewards of this conversation unmasking the world of Norwegian ufology. I want to give a hat tip and a shout out to two folks who made this interview possible. First of all, Klaus Svan, who appeared on BOA Audio in Season 4. He is, of course, the head of UFO Sweden. He's the guy that put me in touch with Ola Jona Brenna to make this interview possible. And I want to give a shout out and thanks to Klaus Jaeger, BOA Audio listener extraordinaire. He's the guy that put me in touch with Klaus Svan in the first place and sort of push the snowball down the hill to make our entry into Scandinavia possible. So big thanks to Klaus Svahn and Klaus Jaeger for their help in putting this all together. For those of you who are unfamiliar with Ola Jona Brenna, allow me to provide a little background on him. Ola Jona Brenna was born in Drammen, Norway. He's been interested in the UFO phenomenon since 1984, and since 1989 has been the webmaster, co-editor, and chairman of UFO Norway. He's written many Norwegian articles and booklets, with articles published in the Archive for UFO Research newsletter, the INFO Journal, and the International UFO Reporter. He's presented lectures at UFO congresses in Sweden and England, and has been interviewed in newspapers in Norway, on radio in Norway, England, and now the United States, and on Norwegian television. His comprehensive report on Norwegian UFO photos can be found at www.ufo.no slash files slash norway.pdf and there's linkage up at BOA for that. Once again, ufo.no slash files slash norway.pdf and the website for UFO Norway is www.ufo.no Pretty simple. That might be the easiest website we ever had here on the program. www.ufo.no Check it out. And so, without any further ado, let's rock and roll. This interview was recorded on November 14th, 2009. Ola Jona Brenna, talking about Norwegian ufology on VOA Audio, Season 5. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of Banal of America Audio. As is tradition here on the program, we love to go international, and we're doing it once again here. We're heading all the way over to Scandinavia, specifically Norway, for discussion on the UFO scene and famous UFO cases in Norway. I almost called it Norwegia. I don't know why, <laughs> so forgive me for that. <laughs> With Ola Jona Brenna. He is the chairman slash director of UFO Norway, good friend of our previous guest, Klaus Svahn. And I'm happy to report this is his first ever American radio interview. Ola Jona Brenna. Welcome to BOA Audio. Thank you for taking the time to talk to us and uh, reach across the Atlantic to our great listeners uh, here in America and across the world, of course. Uh, thank you. I'm uh, honored to be on your show. Uh, this is quite good. <laughs> there you go. Nice. Sounds good. Sounds good. Well, we're really psyched to have you here. We love talking to uh, international UFO experts, and our interview with Klaus Vaughn last year was just so amazing. So many people enjoyed it. It was so riveting and thought-provoking and really uh, gave me great hope for the UFO scene over there in Scandinavia that I got in touch with him this summer and said, 
you know, let's move on now into Norway and discuss the UFO scene in Norway. So as we uh, get going here, Ola, let's start, I guess, with a little bio background on you. Who is Ola Jona Brenna? How did you get interested in UFOs and end up becoming the director of UFO Norway? Uh, well, it uh, started uh, in my early teens, I think. Uh, I was originally very interested in uh, astronomy and uh, space flights and so on. Mm -hmm. And probably in one of the, in the back of the, these astronomy books, there were usually a section about uh, the possibility of life in outer space. And I guess one of those books mentioned uh, UFOs, because uh, I started to read uh, all the books on, in, uh, in the local library on UFOs, and I thought uh, this was uh, actually more interesting. <laughs> so <laughs> that kind of took over as an interest. All right. So in in 1984, I think I uh, become came aware of uh, UFO Norway, and uh, I uh, entered into into that organization. Excellent, excellent. So you've been doing the UFO, you've been interested in UFOs for a long time, and you've been actually sort of like in the Norwegian UFO scene for sheesh, almost 25 years now, over 25 years, I guess. Oh yes, I guess so. <laughs> That's quite a in career. That's amazing. All right, now let's let's sort of start looking at the UFO scene in Norway, and we'll begin with you know some of the key cases and famous cases over there in Norway. Now, I did a pretty cursory look at some of the UFO cases I could find in Norway, and it seems like much like Sweden, you guys had your flaps of strange lights in the 1930s, and then later on in the 1940s. Uh, sp speaking specifically of the ghost flyers wave of 33 and 34, as well as uh, 36 and 37. Now, before we get into that, were there any uh, critical or key or famous cases in Norway prior to the ghost flyers and subsequent ghost rockets flaps? Yes, we had um, we had the sporadic reports of, or have found later uh, in the literature, uh, sporadic reports about um, strange phenomena in, in the air mm -hmm. uh, earlier. Uh, early 1900s and uh, of course the 1800s and so on. I did a, a booklet on historic or pre-1947 cases in Norway. Uh, about 10 years ago we had reports uh, all the way from the 1500s um, going to up to 1946. Oh wow. We had those of course uh, ghost flyers in the 30s and we had some airship sightings like in the United States late 1800s. Uh, also in the 1915 to 1917, I think, there were some, some airship sightings as well. So, yeah, a flap, more or less. Interesting, interesting. So you, so you had like similar airwave situation as what was going on in America at the same time? Yes, we did, we did. These airship sightings was also in Great Britain at the time, approximately at the same time, so... Okay, interesting. Yeah, I find that fascinating. And like I was saying to Klaus when we had him on the show, I mean, your part of the world has been experiencing the UFO phenomenon right on pace with the American part of the world, it seems. So that's what I really uh, have come to realize about Scandinavia and how amazing, uh, you know, your history of UFO phenomena has been. Yes, uh, it's been uh, much, much uh, the same kind of r reports. Even though the phenomena were described as ghost rockets, ghost flyers, airships, and so on, it was most often uh, just 
uh, lights, uh, kind of lights that were seen. They didn't actually see rockets or airplanes or airships as such, but they were thought to be or they were interpreted to be either aircraft or airships or rockets or whatever. Yeah, and this is like the Ghost Flyer 33, 34, 36, 37 waves and, and then the subsequent Ghost Rockets waves, mostly lights and stuff like that? Mm -hmm. Yes, there were also other kind of, of reports, not only lights, but okay. mostly, mostly lights. What were the other kind of reports like? The, in uh, at least in 1946, we have a few reports of uh, actual uh, cigar-shaped or rocket-shaped objects. Oh, interesting. Impacting in lakes and so on. So. Yeah. Ah, okay. Very similar to what happened in Sweden at the time, then. Yeah, we, I know in Sweden uh, you had uh, actually three or four impacts in the same day. Yeah. Also in Norway, we had uh, in the day before we had an impact in in, uh, in one of the lakes. So. <laughs> It's weird stuff. Yeah, it sure is. And it's it's just very strange. I'm still puzzled by the UFOs crashing into lakes there and Sweden. So it, it's something definitely I'd like to look into more eventually and find out more about why these sort of things seem to happen. Now, was the ghost flyer wave and then the ghost rocket wave, did that kind of kick off public awareness of the UFO phenomenon over there in Norway? As you know, they, were, they weren't uh, called uh, UFOs uh, back then, of course. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the Norwegian Air Force and uh, Norwegian Defense Department was, uh, was investigating these uh, ghost flyers in, during the 1930s. We have uh, actually managed to locate the archive material from that time. So we have secured uh, approximately... 1,400 pages uh, of documents from the National Archives in Oslo oh, wow. uh, dealing with ghost flyers and the ghost flyer uh, investigation. Reading all those documents and reports were, they were mostly lights and lights and lights. <laughs> Much misidentifications of stars and planets and there are those kinds of uh, things. The similar, similar things to what we have today, actually. Exactly. There were very, very few UFO-like reports from, from the 1930s. Okay, so like mostly lights. Now, I know some people think, or maybe they're the skeptics or the uh, cynics, think that, you know, maybe these lights were some kind of like uh, test flights coming over from Russia or something like that. Have you, uh, what's your take on that whole theory? Well, there was also, uh, yes, uh, not only from uh, Russia, but also from uh, from Germany. Spy um, and reconnaissance flights launched from hangar ships outside the Norwegian border, and they flew into Norway and Sweden, and then returned to their base ships again. Strange. All right. So there were also there were lots of foreign agents in in Norway during the uh, 1930s. Interesting. So, and, and that's a, that's a fact. That's a documented fact. So we we know that a lot of these reports from the ghost flyers were actually from aircraft, but not Norwegian aircraft. Oh, interesting. That's strange. I guess what we're what we're getting at here with these ghost flyers and ghost rockets, with the exception of a few cigar-shaped ones in the 40s, are just a lot of lights, a lot of mysterious lights. Um, that seemed to be what was going on there in the 30s and then later in the 40s. Yes, and there was also, of course, uh, very much uh, press cover on these ghost flyers. 
when you have one report, suddenly there were 10 more reports in the newspapers uh, from uh, other people uh, also claiming to have seen uh, lights and, uh, and other stuff. Then. So there was kind of a very, very high level of interest and almost a kind of a hysteria going on. Strange. Now, but like what you're saying is that it hadn't even entered into their minds that they, these were like UFOs. Did people just think they were like, uh, you know, other countries' planes and stuff? Yes, exactly, exactly. Interesting, okay. At least during the 1930s, yes. Any other theories than uh, foreign planes didn't enter into the, the discussion at all. So, and what about with the ghost rockets? Was that the same thing, or did people start entertaining the idea that they could be, you know, spaceships or something like that? Well, during 1946, there's always been the impression of, uh, of the researchers that the military and the public always thought that these had to be uh, Russian uh, rockets. Uh, there were no other possibilities discussed. However, I've been uh, searching microfilm mm-hmm. newspapers, only from microfilm, yep. from 1946. Um, in Norway, there were 230 newspapers published that year, and about 135 of these have been uh, searched uh, the whole year for uh, articles and reports about uh, ghost rockets. I've found uh, about 1,600 articles so far. Wow. <laughs> wow. This is this, this thing takes, takes a lot of time, of course. Oh, yeah. But um, we have actually found uh, some press speculation about uh, possible life on Mars and even uh, possible um, Martian origin of the ghost rockets ah, in okay. the Norwegian press. All right, so it's starting to pick up then at that point that this might be... Yeah, but in a very, very very minor way. Yeah. Only, only very few articles. And they actually refer to uh, Swedish uh, newspapers. So Norway cannot take uh, credit for that one, I'm afraid. <laughs> Let's move to the first, I guess, uh, post-Ghost Rocket big UFO event that I know of. And if there's one that you know of that should be mentioned, please let me know. Um, the one I'm looking at here is 1952, and it's the uh, Spitsbergen UFO crash uh, slash retrieval incident, which, uh, as you said before we did the interview, was is obviously very well known in Norway and, and pretty well known here in America as well. Uh, talk about that case, what happened there, and what's your take on what went down in Spitsbergen in 1952? The story itself originated in, um, in Germany, in uh, a newspaper in, uh, on uh, June 28th, and it says that Norwegian pilots on a training exercise for uh, Spitsbergen discovered a uh, flying saucer, ob- obviously a crashed flying saucer, uh, on the ice of uh, Spitsbergen. And uh, it goes on with uh, several details and, uh, of the investigation and so on. This story has been uh, bandied about, <laughs> so on. Uh, in several books and articles and journals all over the place, all the way from 1952 and up. Even still, uh, it's referred to as a, as a legitimate crash regime uh, case. However, we have uh, investigated this story and all the names of the people involved and, and so on mm-hmm. are, uh, are all non-existent people. Uh, you cannot find, uh, find any trace of them either in... Uh, in who's who or in uh, phone uh, directories uh, at the time, nothing at all. Yeah. So it's, it's just it's a fake story, a hoax story. Also, the idea of uh, the Norwegian military 
holding training, ex military training exercises over Spitsbergen is not possible because politically we we are sharing uh, Spitsbergen with the Soviet Union. Yeah, uh, as you may know. Yeah, so any military presence on uh, Spitsbergen is is prohibited. It's it's not even possible to to do. And that was uh, without we are creating an international incident along with it. Yeah. Uh, and all the Norwegian jet fighters were not uh, in. There were no jet fighters in Norway, uh, northern Norway, in at the time. They were all stationed in southern Norway because they were extending the uh, runway on aircraft for jet aircraft in, in northern Norway at the time. So they wouldn't be able to fly the whole distance from southern Norway to Spitsbergen and back again. Interesting. Interesting. But it is, it is physically impossible as well. So I was going to ask you, because like when we talked to Claus, he sort of made the point that he's looked into a lot of classic uh, Swedish UFO cases and uncovered that they're really not as mysterious as we thought they were, and they probably weren't uh, UFO cases, and he's gotten some flack with people in Sweden at times for his, for lack of a better term, debunking uh, these cases. So uh, I guess you're kind of of the same mindset that it's it's better to like look at these classic cases and figure out for sure if they're UFO cases or not and as far as the Spitsbergen case goes you're pretty sure that this is the story is is a hoax yes yes I've been lucky to to get to know Klaus Swan and uh, I've been learning a lot of uh, a lot of tricks of the trade <laughs> from uh, from Klaus years. <laughs> so, so yeah I find it uh, very, very uh, satisfying to reinvestigate these uh, these classic cases to find an explanation for each case. Exactly, exactly. Better to have an explanation and to, and to close the file, if you will, than waste a lot of time looking at a case that really isn't worthy of any serious long-term investigation because we know it's not a UFO. Absolutely, absolutely. Because if you cut away all those conventional cases, all the cases with conventional explanation, the residue you have left, all the so-called UFO, true UFO reports, the quality of these collectively will increase as you as you cut away all those which are not UFOs, really. Yeah. Okay, well, let's move to the next case that I have here in my files and notes, and that's, um, this was sent to me via Kloss, actually, and it's the Bjornulf film uh, from 1954, and it's uh, apparently... Film from a solar eclipse that apparently shows a UFO potentially. Um, so I guess talk a little bit about the uh, the Bjornal film. Yes, well, uh, this was a film uh, was was shot during a solar eclipse uh, in June 30th, 1954. There were some uh, scientists and photographers which were which were flown along the shadow of this uh, solar eclipse as it passed over Norway. And uh, they had a lot of uh, camera equipment, uh, lots of film cameras and photographic equipment on, on these planes to actually record how it looked like from within the shadow and um, out onto the landscape and so on. Mm -hmm. This film was uh, originally prepared for a, um, uh, an advertisement, uh, to be used in advertisement. And uh, when he showed, uh, he didn't see these, uh, nobody saw these UFOs during uh, the filming. They were discovered on the film later on. So, and uh, this this particular film was uh, probably two minutes or two and a half minutes long. No, no, the solar eclipse was two and a half minutes long. Uh, sorry. <laughs> the film itself was only two seconds or so. 
Uh, oh, wow. When these UFOs are visible. This created a lot of uh, oppression uh, controversy during this uh, summer in, in 54. Mm -hmm. One of the famous uh, Norwegian uh, debunkers, he was an astrophysicist, he uh, actually performed an experiment the next day. He went up in a similar uh, aircraft and flew along the uh, same uh, path and filmed out uh, through the window. And he actually managed to record uh, a phenomenon very, very similar to the original film. So it, and on the original film, you can also see that the, the UFOs, there were two, two bright lights, which uh, seemed to follow uh, the aircraft. You can see on the original film that uh, it was really reflections from the window opposite uh, the film camera. Ah, okay, so that's another one we can put to bed here on... on absolutely, absolutely, absolutely. It's, it's just uh, reflections of, uh, of the sun uh, shining on the other uh, side of the, the aircraft in the window there. Okay. So All right. it's 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 kind of strange. It's it well, it generated so much press in the first place because it is clearly visible on the film itself. It is strange that it would become so popular, even though it was pretty clearly uh, not a UFO. Now the next case I have is in 1972, which is like uh, 18 years later. Was there any big cases between 54 and 72 that you think uh, merit mentioning? Well, it's difficult to point out specific cases because we have uh, cases all over the place, you know. Yeah. Um, unfortunately, we haven't had as many field investigators as they have in Sweden or or US. So lots of lots of lots and lots of these cases should be should actually be reinvestigated and uh, and the observers should be re-interviewed and so on. Yeah. And they really go into in-depth uh, investigation on all these. Okay. Uh, classic cases, like they have done in, in in Sweden, but they haven't done much of that in uh, in Norway yet. Maybe someday soon, hopefully. Now, what about the 1972 uh, Namsen Fjorden trace cases on the ground? And it says uh, mm -hmm. at Kjolsoya. I'm sure I'm butchering the names here of these locations, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Yes. Uh, actually, the story uh, it's it's called Namsen Fjorden. It's the story begins in uh, in actually in 1959. Oh wow! Uh, because then uh, uh, a forester, shortly before Christmas, he observed the dark. Uh, he was coming back. Uh, he's come back from uh, from work, and was uh, on, the, on his way about to enter into the, his house, when he became aware of a, a dark object which was coming uh, down from his um, from his side in front of the mountain. So it and looked like a, a little bus with a row of windows and so on. And it was completely silent when it flew along in front of the mountain. He realized it was not an astronomical uh, object or phenomenon, since it was, uh, since you could see the mountain behind it. Mm -hmm. uh, this object became uh, glowing red, and uh, it suddenly just uh, tore itself apart with a huge uh, explosion. Oh, wow. And, it seemed to, to him that it was a sort of a, a cover that was ripped off uh, the object itself, and it exploded into several parts, including what seemed to be three cylinders. And it all all these parts just fell into into the mountain fjord. Two other people as well uh, heard this uh, explosion, but they didn't see the the object itself. Later on, it's been many many reports from that. 
uh, Namsen Fjord area. So it's kind of interesting start <laughs> on the whole thing. And on June 11th, 1972, there were um, a number of triangular uh, tracks or traces discovered at a place called Schölsöya. These triangular tracks were often in the number of three and three, uh, like a triangular configuration. They were 160 centimeters long on each side, and uh, they were pressed down into the ground about uh, 30 centimeters deep. And uh, a lot of tracks were discovered during the next few weeks. Many observers during the summer of uh, the whole summer of 1972 discovered lights and uh, uh, round objects and cigar-shaped objects uh, in in the Nansenfjorden area. And the week before these uh, tracks were discovered, there were uh, local problems with uh, TV reception. So, but if that is connected to this or not, we we don't know. There was also a military uh, captain who saw a, um, a high-speed object, uh, uh, which he thought was a boat on the water, but he saw through binoculars that it was above the water, about a one meter above the water, and suddenly it was taking off at a 45-degree angle and disappeared into into the sky. So a lot of strange things have been happening in this this area, and especially during 1972. Now, there's still events going on in, in Namsen Fjorden, or no? Yes, there is. Yes, there is. Interesting. Okay, okay. We'll get into more contemporary cases soon. One sort of big piece of UFO Norway is the uh, Project Hestelen uh, that you guys, I think, have been working with UFO Sweden on, but I'm not positive about that. I know that there, between 81 and 84, there were numerous UFO reports in the valley of uh, Hestelen, and then, you know, there's been this ongoing investigation, Project Hestelin, to uh, look into what was going on there. So I guess talk a little bit about the Hestelin area and their famous UFO events. Yeah, uh, well, we were became aware of uh, Hestelin and uh, reports from Hestelin around uh, December 1981. We thought this was just a local uh, flap, shortwave, shortwave, shortwave flap, short time. But the reports just kept coming in during 1982 and 1983. So, okay, this uh, this phenomenon is not uh, going away. We uh, need to do something about it mm -hmm. because nobody else did anything. They were just proclaiming, uh, ah, this has to be uh, the planet Mars or Venus, and this has to be local train lights and so on. <laughs> so, but uh, the phenomenon was seen down into the valley below the observers, and uh, they were, it was observed for several uh, several hours sometimes. So it was, it was obvious that something was going on in this valley. It's a very remote valley, and only 250 uh, people were living there at the time, during the early 80s. So in uh, 1983, UFO Norway and UFO Sweden was... Uh, was founding uh, or starting a project Hestown to find out exactly what was going on and, and so on. And uh, we st managed to uh, get some of scientists uh, and some of military people I I interested as well. So we managed to borrow uh, equipment like uh, radar and spectrograph and magnetometer and so on to measure as much as we could uh, about the environment. And Sometimes we manage to register these phenomena on the radar and on uh, on the magnetometer. At the same time, they were 
seen visually. Interesting. Uh, and sometimes we will just see them visually, and sometimes just only on radar. <laughs> uh, <laughs> have you ever seen uh, any objects there? I figure you must have been, you know, at Hesselin for the for the project and stuff like that. Did you ever see any weird stuff? I was there uh, later or later on in uh, later in the eighties, and uh, I did have. Uh, I saw also some uh, only some uh, nocturnal lights flipping around. I wasn't there during the project period in 1984 and 1985. Okay. So Project is not going on anymore, though, right? Yes, it is. It oh, is. okay. Uh, after 1985, it was, uh, Project Hesselin was kind of the dormant for several years. And then we were, uh, we were, we were quite convinced that uh, there were no more reports because we didn't report, receive any more uh, reports from Hesselin at all. Yeah. And uh, during the early early 90s, mid 90s, we became aware that uh, hey, there were still uh, observations and reports going on. There were still things going on in Hestalen. So uh, Mr. Allingstrand, which was uh, which was uh, one of the scientists which uh, was actively involved in during 1984-85, he started uh, up uh, Project Hestalen again at uh, at Østfold College. That project is still going on in Hestalen, and he managed to get a lot of equipment and so on. And now there are uh, an automatic measurement uh, station permanently stationed in in Hestalen with uh, cameras and ELF uh, magnetic field uh, measurements and so on. A lot of different equipment. All these uh, stuff are are available on on the internet continually. Yes, at uh, Hestalen.org, and it's H-E-S-S-D-A-L-E-N.org, so folks should definitely check that out. Definitely, yes. Okay, so we'll move to the last case that I have here, and that's 1995. Uh, Soma, close encounter of the fourth kind cases where people uh, lost some time during an mm -hmm. observation, and UFO Norway did some regression sessions through a hypnoanalyst on one of the women involved. Uh, talk a little bit about that strange case. Yes, well, this was... Um an observation that took place on uh, 26th of August in 1995. Three women were um, were driving on a road between Moss and uh, and Fredrikstad, which is in uh, eastern part, southeastern part of Norway. First, one of them sees what they think is a light in the sky, and they stop, uh, stop the car. And one more of the women uh, see a light before it disappears. And they continue on driving and. Uh, one of them sees spots uh, an object again, um, and, and the others, the two other women see it too. And this time the object was hovering in the sky, not uh, not just moving. And the car behaved uh, very erratic between these two observations, having ignition problems, and uh, the, the lights were so weak they couldn't be seen uh, at all. And uh, there were no street lights, street lights working on on the road either. So that's, that's kind of a strange, uh, strange thing. This trip between Moss and Fredrikstad usually took uh, 35 or 45 minutes to go. But this time uh, it took uh, one hour and 35 minutes. So they weren't, weren't home until 3.20 a.m., 3.30 a.m., about that. So when they were having this, uh, this observation uh, on the road, the, the driver's uh, husband, which was home. He smelled uh, sulfur in the air at 2.15 while experiencing compute, some computer problems. So this was at the same time they were having their 
experience. And when the woman driver uh, came home at uh, 3.30 about, he smelled the same uh, sulfur smell from her hair that he was smelling at uh, 2.15 earlier. And two of the three women were experiencing dizziness, uh, loss of energy, nosebleeds, and uh, vivid uh, dreams in uh, the days and weeks following this, uh, this experience, this observation. The last thing they remember is uh, the object coming down toward, toward them and stopping in front of the car. All the three, uh, three women have the same report, the same observation until then. So we asked them uh, because they had uh, some some uh, amnesia or missing time yeah. during this uh, episode uh, if they wanted to try uh, hypnosis. And all three women were, were hypnotized. But two of them were hypnotized by a different person. But the third w woman were hypnotized by a second, second hypnotist. So more or less all of these three women had identical uh, stories during hypnosis the only only difference was uh, was the description of uh, of the, the the entities or uh, per persons that they were observing because the hypnosis revealed that um, at least from the third uh, woman's uh, perspective that a man in a long cape with hood came out of the object and he opened the car door and she experienced uh, being sucked out of the car Wow. And, and next, uh, the, the, the hypnosis was revealing like uh, snippets of, uh, of uh, this, this episode with the blanks uh, between. <laughs> not, not a continuous, uh, continuous story. Huh. Uh, next, she remembers lying on the table, and this uh, same man was standing uh, next to her. The room she was in seemed to be dimly lit. The, there was only, it seemed to be light only around her, her body. And... A thin, glassy, kind of transparent tube was inserted into her body uh, around the navel uh, area. And she felt, she felt um, an unpleasant, warm feeling around, around the insertion point inside her, her body. Uh, when uh, the man or being placed his hand on her head and forehead and the pain disappeared. Uh, and she also felt something was extracted from uh, her body. This, she, des she describes this man as 160 centimeters high and, and human-like. And one of the other women describes this being as 120 centimeters tall and with large eyes. So they, th this is the difference between these uh, women's stories. Interesting. So, and she also experienced uh, or felt that there was others around, uh, other beings around the table. And when the tube was uh, retracted, she, she lost consciousness. consciousness. She so next remembers uh, being back in the car, and the other women were missing. Uh, she was paralyzed. And when she eventually, the movement uh, returned to her body, she, the, the other women were also present there. And uh, the car suddenly starts to move uh, as if nothing had happened. Wow. Uh, when the object uh, when the object landed, it was it was bright, had several lights and uh, a red bronze kind of color. And when the man exited the object, it was it was dark, dark object. That's amazing. That's an amazing story. It's it's, it's a classic uh, kind of 
abduction story, I guess. But it's amazing to hear it happening in a whole other country and all the way across the world so accurately described in, in the same way that we hear it here in America. Yeah, yeah. You brought something up that made me think a little bit here, and I wish I'd asked uh, Klaus about it, but I can definitely ask you about it. And that is that, uh, you know, throughout UFO studies, there are a lot of uh, different descriptions of the aliens. And, of course, we know about the greys, but the other one that's really popular is the Nordic-style aliens. Have you ever considered or, you know, have you guys ever, like, sat around and thought about why it is that, this other alien race is described as looking so much like people from from your part of the world. Have you ever, like, uh, you know, given that any thought? Uh, no, not exactly. Uh, I mean, we have so few uh, so few of these kinds of uh, reports, like clones encounters of the third kind and fourth kind, and and uh, like entity reports at all. It is uh, only uh, yeah, well, we have just a few few dozen. Uh, reports of that, of, of that kind. So, and even in the same, uh, as you heard in the same report, uh, uh, different people describes these uh, entities uh, differently. Uh, I, don't, I don't know what did they really, really look like. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, that's true. That's true. They could be putting on some kind of shield or mind trick or something like that. It is though interesting that there is this whole class of aliens theoretically or allegedly, that are described as looking like uh, Nordic peoples. So mm -hmm. it makes you wonder what the connection there might be. Yeah, uh, well, we, we, we do have, uh, have uh, a report from, uh, like from 1915, with, uh, which, in which the entity was described as one meter high and, uh, and uh, with gray skin. So we have, we have those as well. So. Oh, absolutely, yeah. Yeah, wow, okay, so that's like a, that's an old, a really old uh, report of a gray, it sounds like. Yeah, yeah. The 95 Close Encounter case is the last one I have in my notes, um, but obviously there have been some events in the last 14 years over there in, in Norway. What kind of uh, UFO reports do you guys get nowadays in contemporary times over there? Well, we, got, we, we do get all kinds of, uh, of reports. Most of them we are able to uh, to identify or find an explanation for uh, fairly quickly uh, because uh, oh, during the years we get uh, experience from all the other uh, reports we already had uh, early, uh, earlier but uh, we get uh, at least an increase in uh, in uh, photos oh okay lately yeah are they good photos do you think or are you usually able to uh, you know figure out those right away, too, and that they're not UFOs? Well, some of them are a little bit more tricky than, than others. <laughs> <laughs> I did uh, a survey in uh, 2006 together with a Spanish uh, researcher called uh, Bolester Olmos of, uh, of UFO photo cases in, uh, in Norway, and uh, we managed to locate 744 uh, cases. Oh, wow. 479 of those were from Hestown, and 265 were from uh, well, other places in the uh, rest of Norway. So, um, and of, of these 265 uh, cases, 16 were classified as a UFO image dating from before 1981. And between 1981 and 2005, we have 39 more UFO 
photos or film or video clips uh, so far. But of course, many of these need to be uh, need to be further investigated uh, in order to be sure of what we what we really have. And from 2006 to 2009, we have at least as many cases as we have from before 2006. Oh wow! So, so it's, like been, a real... it's been a it has been a real increase in uh, in digital photos, especially. Interesting, yeah. But you got a lot of uh, a, lot, a lot of pictures of uh, birds and insects and uh, <laughs> yeah. so on. Exactly, yeah, yeah. I'm sure you have to sift through a lot of those. Now, uh, you said that there have been some interesting close encounter cases over there in Norway. What's your take on some of these? Are they good cases, or are we talking about Josta Carlson-style cases here, where uh, it turns out maybe there isn't a close encounter? Well, uh, I think there are both kinds of uh, reports, uh, actually, because, um, well, just like, uh, like take one from, uh, from 1954, uh, for example, where uh, during August, uh, two uh, sisters were out uh, berry picking, picking berries in the woods. Uh, this is a fairly, fairly well-known uh, case. Uh, they were together with their uncle, and they uh, met uh, met a guy, <laughs> a man, a typical Nordic uh, type of man. He didn't speak. They didn't uh, manage to communicate with each other at all. And uh, the uncle didn't see anything uh, they experienced. This uh, man took out uh, something to draw on and draw rings and pointed to them, and the third ring and pointed to himself and the fourth uh, fourth ring. So they thought he was um, trying to uh, tell them that he was from uh, from Mars or something. That huh. was drawing drawing the solar system. <laughs> But uh, all, all this, uh, this is a very, very, very uh, long and complicated uh, story. But the weak point here is that um, the book uh, Flying Saucers Have Landed by uh, George Adamski yeah. was, was published in Norwegian just a few weeks uh, before this, uh, this story. Oh. Before that, yeah. So that's a weak point. But these, these two, these two uh, women which raised uh, 24 and 32 at the time. They they stuck to their story all the, all the time later on. Interesting. So they, they, they never retracted uh, the, their, their reports. Okay, now I've noticed also that you have a lot of uh, USO reports in Norway. I guess uh, talk a little bit about that, because it sounds like they're as, as populous over there as uh, UFOs maybe. Might be. Well, both uh, both Sweden and uh, Norway have had a long history of uh, un so-called unknown submarines and uh, USOs going back to at least uh, World War One oh, wow. uh, and, and and up to to today. So, uh, Norwegian um, military uh, is uh, actually dealing with four categories uh, of unknown submarine reports. That's a certain, probable, and possible uh, submarine. Mm -hmm. And uh, and the fourth category, which is most interesting to ufologists, I think, is a not submarine. Oh. <laughs> From 1969 to 1983, the Norwegian Navy reported uh, or received uh, 200 uh, reports from uh, from the public. And by correlating these 200 reports, it uh, it was possible to reduce the actual number of uh, possible submarines to 175. And all of these 
175 uh, reports. Uh, the Navy classified 75 of them as not UFO, uh, submarine, not submarine. Okay, yeah. So, but we haven't been able to uh, to get uh, our hands on or locating the, these uh, these files yet. Okay, yeah, yeah. Well, that's the problem so, in a lot of countries. Yeah, and also there have been so, uh, some reports, of course, from uh, like from the 1946 and so on, uh, up until the 80s, 90s, of of uh, objects crashing into lakes and rivers and so on. But uh, we haven't any reports or know about any reports of uh, objects going the other way, like uh, emerging from from lakes and emerging from uh, from water. Yeah, that's what I was just going to ask you. Uh if that was the case, if you had any cases like that, but it sounds like more often than not they're, you know, for lack of a better term, they're using Norway as an entrance point rather than an exit. <laughs> yeah, sort of. What for or how or why, we don't know, but if we're just looking at it on the face value, that would be the, seem to be the case. You know what? Don't even worry about it. Everyone was so drunk, I bet no one even remembers what you said. I remember. I blogged the whole thing www.creedthoughts.gov.www backslash creedthoughts. Check it out. You're listening to Banal of America Audio. Last year, Creed asked me how to set up a blog, wanting to protect the world from being exposed to Creed's brain. I opened up a Word document on his computer and put an address at the top. I've read some of it. Even for the internet, it's pretty shocking. All right. Are there any other cases you think we should talk about before we move into uh, UFO studies in Norway? Well, not that I can uh, remember. No, no, no. Okay. All right. No favorite case of yours that we haven't talked about yet or anything like that? Oh, I have favorite cases, but they are all sold. <laughs> <laughs> like uh, Spitsbergen and uh, so on. So uh, we really have done, have done enough, uh, enough investigation in Norway. On on uh, on our favorite cases yet. Okay, well then let's talk a little bit about uh, the history of UFO studies in Norway. We kind of have talked about how it was sort of scarcely discussed that they may be from Mars or something during the ghost rockets wave of '46. When did people in Norway start to really look at the UFO phenomenon in the way that UFO Norway is doing now? I know they formed. UFO Norway in 73, it was the uh, Norsk UFO Center from 73 to 80, and then it sort of dissolved for about a year or two, and then it became UFO Norway. So was there anyone studying UFOs prior to 73, or was that really sort of the beginning of serious UFO studies over there? No, uh, well, in uh, during the 1950s, middle uh, to late 1950s, there were some couple of local groups uh around mm -hmm. and there were some more uh, local groups forming during the 1960s none of these actually investigated any any cases they were very influenced by contactees like uh, George Adamski and uh, Howard Menger and those kind of things yeah. so they were much more of a sort of evangelical uh, <laughs> bent not not researchers or investigators at all Okay. So, lot of lot of lot of early cases uh, were only reported in uh, in the newspapers, and these local groups, their main objective was uh, really to convince everything else that uh, the aliens was already here and uh, they were going to help us. <laughs> <laughs> okay. 
Okay, so that was like the fifties and the sixties. Then it sounds like maybe in in the early seventies, that's when you guys started to get, for lack of a better term, serious about uh, examining cases and stuff. Yes, uh, during the nineteen uh, early nineteen seventies, uh, there were uh, people who uh, saw that there was uh, a demand for a national organization to to coordinate every, everything, all the small groups. Mm-hmm. So the national organization was created uh, by all these uh, smaller groups. And at the same time, uh, there was a sort of a shift in uh, philosophy uh, in which the investigators were actually going out and interviewing people and investigating cases. But there was still, um, there was still mainly uh, ET-oriented uh, in their uh, outlook on, on the phenomenon itself. That also changed during the 1970s until early 1980s. Uh, people became more and more uh, well, critical, uh, if not skeptical. Okay, yeah. All right, interesting. So sort of running parallel to UFO Sweden in a way. That's interesting. Okay, and that's when you sort of came aboard UFO Norway in the uh, mid-80s, right? Yes. Uh, 84, I became uh, aware of uh, the existence of uh, Norway and... I started uh, my membership then, and in 1989 I became uh, more actively involved. All right. So since I've been doing uh, research or investigation since since 1989. Are there any famous uh, Norwegian UFO researchers that you think bear mentioning here on the interview that you know, so we can keep their name alive in history? Any mentors that you had or precursors to your tenure as leader of UFO Norway? Well, uh, these uh, these guys have been uh, with the Norsk UFO Center since the uh, early 1970s, mm-hmm. and uh, there were there were guys like uh, Arling Strand and Odd Gunnar Rød, uh, which actually started uh, or were were the prime engines in in UFO Norway uh, during the 1970s and 80s. So yeah. When the philosophy change happened in the group, did they leave, or did they did they also change their philosophy on on looking at UFO reports? No, I think they were actually uh, part of uh, the group that uh, initiated this uh, this change of philosophy, because there were a lot of internal uh, discussion and uh, and uh, during the nineteen early nineteen eighties, actually there were uh, a split in uh, UFO Norway, which uh, there were actually two organizations called UFO Norway at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> but these, uh, they they, uh, they uh, overcame their uh, difficulties or uh, disagreements and, and joined uh, back again. See, that's amazing, especially when I look at it from the American point of view, because once there's a split in ufology, it's very rare that they get back together again here in America. Yes, it, yes, it is. And especially in the UK and in France, uh, as of now, there are no, uh, there are no groups, no national groups in uh, in France, and also in the UK, there are deep splits among uh, among different researchers, uh, and I think that's a bad thing, uh, sad because uh, you can disagree, you can agree to disagree and still work together on uh, on different different areas. Absolutely, yeah, that's the that's the message we've been trying to convey on this show for for years now, um, and hopefully, you know, people can hear what's going on over there, what happened in Norway, and appreciate and respect that uh, you guys are a little more mature, I think, than <laughs> some of the uh, American UFO researchers who are sticking to their guns and, and don't want to work together. So that that's great. 
uh, I found this interesting note in the uh, UFO Sweden files about uh, UFO Norway, and that was that uh, I think it was the then director of UFO Norway. They were trying to recruit him into the NIVFO, which is the Norwegian counterpart to the American uh, skeptical organization PSYCOP. Is the NIVFO still in existence over there in, in Norway? No, they uh, they pulled in the uh, late uh, late eighties. That's good news. Now, <laughs> that's interesting to note then that you know as your organization was changing their perspective on UFOs, in comes this uh, skeptical organization that was formed. Now, were mm -hmm. I presume they've always been skeptics over there in Norway, but what was this the first really sort of uh, you know organized attempt to develop like a skeptical organization in Norway? Yes, yes, it was, and uh, it was called NIVFO. It existed. Well, almost ten years, nine, nine, ten years, during the 1980s. Interesting. And uh, now there exists uh, another group, uh, which uh, is, is only only has a website, no, no, uh, no journal or anything uh, like that. But they publish uh, books uh, every every two or three years. Or so, and it's called it's called they they're called Skepsis. Oh, interesting. Okay. All right. So, so they, they they are they are skeptical of uh, everything which uh, is uh, which in everything which is anomalous. <laughs> yeah, all parallel uh, stuff. Yeah. 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 All, everything. So see a lot of parallels here between America and Norway that uh, I had never known about. Uh, I was really surprised by this Norwegian counterpart to Psychop that was formed in the 80s. Now, I guess that sort of covers the the history of UFO studies in Norway, I presume then, since the philosophy changed, that the perspective of people interested in UFOs has changed where there really aren't that many people who are so into the contactee movement over there anymore, right? No, there aren't. Uh, there, aren't uh, there are some, but uh, they are not uh, organized. Uh, they are just uh, individ individually uh, interested uh, in, in it. In that aspect. Okay. But of course, we in Norway is also interested in the contactee aspects as uh, as reports. But we are we don't blindly believe uh, what the contactees are saying, as we used to do during the 1950s and 60s. But what they said was gospel, you know. So. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So now nowadays, I guess UFO Norway is like the big organization over there, kind of like the American MUFON. Group. Are there any other littler organizations, or is UFO Norway sort of like the umbrella group for all those little little groups? There is there is one uh, there is a Norwegian counterpart to uh, to Stephen Greer's uh, group uh, over there. Yeah. Oh, okay, it's, so like an exopolitics group. Yeah. So it's a little smaller than uh, than uh, than Norway, UFO Norway, but uh, they 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 do exist. They are more active, have meetings and so on. So they they're more socially uh, socially inclined. Interesting. Okay, so how long ago did they form? Oh, they formed in uh, I think in '93. I think. Oh wow! Mm -hmm. So they've been around for quite a while then. Yeah, yeah, sure. Now here in America, the exopolitical groups, which is sort of what you're describing, they're all about you know petitioning the government to release files, and and they do sort of push the agenda that the aliens are here and that. Um, you know that, that that they've already solved the UFO mystery, for lack of a better term. Is that sort of the attitude of the Norwegian exopolitical group, or are they a little more grounded in in what they're trying to do? No, no, they they know the answer to the UFO mystery already. 
they are uh, extraterrestrial uh, spaceships and so on. But um, it is kind of uh, weird that the uh, exopolitics uh, movement in Norway is, is uh, at least uh, verbally pressing for release of uh, documents and, uh, and so on. But uh, they haven't actually done any any research to to release, or, or they haven't they haven't located any documents at all, like you from Norway has done. Wow! So what have they been doing for the last 16 years? <laughs> well, they have uh, they have been for public meetings and so on, but uh, a lot of uh, lectures, uh, meetings, yeah, all that kind of stuff. It's more, more or less, it seems to me to be more like. A public relations um, operation. And what's the relationship like between UFO Norway and the uh, exopolitical group? Are you guys on good terms, or is it kind of like a friendly rivalry, or is it one group dislikes the other, or what's what's the what's the mood like between the two groups? Well, it's not it's not no no, no animosity or anything. I, I'm uh, I'm a good friend with um, with their uh, chairman, uh, and I talk to him uh, every now and then. And we cooperate when when we can cooperate or have yeah. something to cooperate about. So there's no infighting in or, or anything like that. That's good. That's good. Now we're going to look at some of these big picture groups and institutions over there in Norway and how they feel about UFOs. And we'll start with uh, just the government. What What has the government said about UFOs? Now you sort of talked about how it's hard to locate sort of files and stuff and I suppose we can group the military in with the government here. So, you know, what's been the general attitude of the government and the military in Norway with regards to UFOs? Well, there haven't been any official uh, messages or uh, statements from any in the in the government about UFOs. But uh, we did uh, have some assistance from um, from the Norwegian army during the Project Hestholm uh, period in 1984 and 1995. Uh, they were lending us uh, equipment, various equipment, uh, during these these weeks. Has the uh, military done any sort of like Project Blue Book style studies on UFOs or anything that you know about that was public knowledge at any time? Well, uh, we've been trying to, to locate documents and archive material on, on UFOs for, uh, for a long time. So far, we have uh, uh, approximately 210 pages uh, on ghost flyers released from uh, the Ministry of Foreign Affairs. They date from 34 to, to 37. And the National Archives, uh, in the National Archives, we found uh, about 1,400 pages from uh, from the from the military, different sections of the military. The problem is that after the files are transferred to uh, the National Archives. A lot of um, a lot of um, archive material has been destroyed in uh, in Norway during the years illegally. So not only on uh, on UFO related stuff, but in on other historical subjects as well. Interesting. And this is a great problem for uh, for historical uh, researchers in in Norway. If the ghost rocket and other UFO files uh, has not been destroyed, they are lo probably located within. Uh, somewhere within the National Archives, uh, but they haven't been, been able to, to locate these files and they haven't been able to confirm that they have been destroyed either. So it is unknown if they still exist or not. And uh, also the police, uh, the security service of the police in Norway, mm -hmm. 
which uh, handles the security of uh, diplomats and, uh, and also in the, the, the counterintelligence part. They have a UFO file uh, folder of about uh, 140 pages covering the years 1970 to 1990. And uh, this file is still classified, not uh, released at all. I was lucky to be able to take a look at the, at the file folder in, uh, in 1993 after we have uh, had confirmed that they, they did have it. So, but about half of this, uh, these pages were obviously uh, misidentifications and not, not interesting stuff, but the other half of things we would like to have uh, a copy of eventually. Sounds like it for sure. Now, when I talked to Klaus, he sort of emphasized that uh, UFO Sweden has a pretty good working relationship with the military over there in Sweden. Is that similar to uh, UFO Norway? Do you guys you know, work with the military much aside from Project Hesselin? Or is it uh, a less cozy relationship? Uh, no, there's no relationship at all, actually. We do call uh, military airports and so on to see if they have anything registered on radar sometimes. Yeah. Uh, depending on what kind of reports we receive. Um, uh, my impression is uh, it's, uh, it's uh, really dependent on who you, uh, who you uh, actually talk to whether you get a reasonable answer or not. <laughs> <laughs> uh, sometimes they do check their, uh, their their logs, and sometimes they are not interested in, in doing even that. Oh, wow. So it really depends. So then they just call the next day or a few hours later and, and meet another person. But we haven't done anything actually, anything active to establish a relationship either. So it's it's partly, partly the fault of Norway as well. Since there are no, no relationship at all. Okay, well, maybe in the future you guys can and do something like that. Now, what about one of the big things I'm interested here in is uh, the media and UFOs. Now, we, we sort of teased and talked about it a little bit earlier that, you know, there were some small mentions of a potential Mars connection during the ghost rocket wave, and then that the Bjornal film was a pretty big story over there. What's been the evolution of coverage of UFOs in the in the Norwegian media over the years. It's been like that. Uh, some some uh, some uh, reports are getting a lot of uh, press uh, coverage for uh, for a while, and then it's uh, silent for a long time, and then it's uh, it's the next report which gets uh, a lot of press uh, press coverage. Uh, it can be a fake photo or uh, whatever. During 1946, there was a mention of a Martian uh, connection, as you said, and mentioned earlier. Uh, and, but all, all the reports in the press uh, in, during 1946 were uh, quite serious. Uh, there was no giggle factor then. That only occurred uh, next year, not during 1947, uh, where there was a lot of uh, humor and... Uh, and uh, Ridicule, yes, of, of observers and ridicule of, of, this, of uh, descriptions of uh, saucers and so on, you know. But uh, nowadays, whenever there are uh, interviews or uh, reports in the papers, it is my opinion that it's treated more seriously or, or objectively, neither, neither uh, humor or, 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 or like believe everything that they say. Interesting. Okay, so things are turning around nowadays in, in Norway as far as uh, coverage of UFOs? 
Yeah, I think it has turned around because there are very, very seldom there are uh, any any humor involved or uh, jokes uh, connected to to UFOs in the press. What's their attitude like, Dan? Are they just saying, "Here's a mysterious UFO report"? Do they speculate on on what it might be? Or you said the the government doesn't say anything about UFOs, so is it just they put the report out there and that's it? Yeah, it's uh, it's pretty much like that because uh, whenever there are uh, UFO reports, it's it's uh, usually on the, on the web uh, page of the newspaper first because before it's in the paper edition the next day, and on the, on the web uh, people comment on uh, on all kinds of uh, theories on to what it to what observation was and might be and what uh, what the picture was uh, looked like and so on. That's a good segue, I guess, to the last big institution, and that's just the public opinion of UFOs. What's the attitude of the general public with regards to UFOs? Uh, are they more positive to it nowadays, or are they negative to it, or are they just disinterested and they don't care? I mean, what you, you probably have a pretty good idea of how the public feels about UFOs in Norway. Well, it's, it's, an, it's a specter of uh, all kinds of uh, opinions, I think. Uh, I think most people are not very interested in UFOs at all. Uh, when they hear about uh, UFOs or read about UFOs, they are probably most, most more inclined to say that it was probably just a planet or ju probably just an aircraft or so on. Uh, and I can understand that, but I, I want to find out uh, exactly uh, what planet it was or, or what specific uh, aircraft was involved. No, not just uh, blow it off like uh, any explanation is good. <laughs> exactly, exactly. As the director of UFO Norway, are you called upon to speak to the media much uh, with regards to UFOs? Not, not very often, no. Not, 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 not much. That's disappointing. It sounds like they really aren't doing a very investigative job of, of UFO reporting over there in the media, at least. No, when when uh, when uh, the public uh, contacts the newspaper about some photos they've been taking or uh, an observation they've been uh, having, uh, it's uh, very rare they contact from Norway to to get some uh, comments or uh, or maybe even uh, explanation of uh, of the report. I think they should have done that uh, much more uh, much more often. Absolutely, yeah, for sure. I mean, we are we are in the phone directory and we are on the internet, so. They should know about us uh, anyway. Now, what about TV programs or radio programs that are devoted to the paranormal? I mean, we have a ton of them here in America. Is there much of a marketplace for uh, esoteric or paranormal media over there in Norway? Well, there are some uh, some TV programs. I think one or two TV series that goes uh, like the like, uh, talk show interview programs, uh, which is more... Uh, concentrated on the esoteric and paranormal uh, subjects. They tend to be uh, short-lived, uh, like, uh, experiments <laughs> <laughs> from, uh, for, from, for different TV channels, yeah. Yeah, so there's no big show over there now or anything like that? No, 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 not, not like in, uh, in the U.S. at all. Yeah. Now, you've been the director of U... Uh, I don't know how long you've been the director of UFO Norway, but you've been intimately involved with them since 89, I think you said. What's the ebb and flow of the membership like? Because I know here in America, UFO groups, you know, they sort of go through their ups and downs depending on the popularity of UFOs with the general public. What, what have you been able to observe in that regard as far as, you know, um, membership or just general interest in UFO Norway? 
uh, during the 1970s, when uh, when the national organization was first uh, formed, we had uh, initially about uh, 150 uh, people along, I think. But much energy was uh, expended on uh, public relations and uh, advertising and so on during the 1970s, mm-hmm. along with uh, we had a few high-profile cases and so on. So the membership increased uh, steadily uh, during the 1970s and 80s. And uh, in the mid-90s, I think we had almost close to 1,000 uh, people or subscribers to, to our journal. But uh, nowadays we have uh, we are down to about 300 again. So it's been uh, it's been every year it's been uh, fewer and fewer and fewer. But during the 1990s, of course, X Files was uh, running on uh, on TV as well. Yeah, that probably helped like public awareness. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, that seems to be the case from people I've talked to over in the UK as well. So it sounds like you guys are victims of public interest and fads and stuff like that as much as uh, the rest of us are. Yes, and also, of course, the internet uh, appeared in, during the 1990s, uh, and uh, I think people nowadays think they can find uh, everything on the internet and uh, YouTube and just Google for UFO, and uh, you find everything uh, worth uh, worth knowing. But I think it is important to to actually read books and not just surf the net, because <laughs> everyone can write anything on the internet. How do you know uh, what uh, what information to trust and what information not to trust on the internet? I mean, it's, uh, it's a jungle. <laughs> and especially on YouTube, you have no uh, no reports uh, or, uh, or anything uh, text or written uh, along with uh, a video clip at all. So it's uh, really not possible to, to evaluate uh, anything. Exactly. Now, speaking of UFO groups, I know that Klaus was saying that UFO Sweden and UFO Nowhere work pretty close together. What kind of projects are you guys working on uh, nowadays? Well, as you know, uh, UFO Sweden has, uh, uh, each year, they have uh, field investigator training uh, for, for a weekend each, each year. And we hope to send uh, more Norwegian field investigators for, for training there. We are also scanning our uh, report archive and our press uh, clipping, a collection of press clippings, uh, in order to make uh, make it available more more easily available uh, to people. Um, we ho- I hope to uh, at, le- at least to translate uh, all all the 1946 newspaper uh, articles into into English eventually. That would be great, yeah, yeah. Here in Norway, we have two different uh, databases uh, of reports, UFO reports, from our uh, report archive. Only one of them is online uh, on our website. Mm-hmm. Um, in uh, in Sweden, they have the same situation. They have UFO Sweden has their database, and the archives of UFO uh, research have their own database. And and one uh, one uh, project would be to which I would like to see uh, see realized would would be to to fuse all these uh, different databases into one uh, common database. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. If we could get that going on around the world, we'd be in really good shape, I think. Okay, well, uh, anything else you think we should talk about that we might have missed? Uh, We've covered a lot, so I know that. Uh, yeah. Maybe we could uh, mention Photocat. Uh, uh, yeah, I mentioned uh, Ballester Ormos from uh, from Spain earlier. 
and we were doing a, a survey over all the UFO photo cases in uh, in Norway. Mm -hmm. And uh, that survey resulted in a um, in a, in a report, a written report, about 200 uh, pages, with uh, which where we included lots and lots of uh, of UFO photos from uh, from Norway, and that's uh, almost like a, <laughs> a little book, actually. Uh, and it is freely available to to download from from the internet. Okay, where can folks get that? Uh, at ufo.no slash file slash norway.pdf. Okay, ufo.no slash files slash norway.pdf. Yeah. Sounds good. Okay, and folks can always check out your website, ufo.no, and then if they scroll down, there's an English section uh, there. They'll, they'll be able to find the English links on the left-hand yeah. side at the bottom of the menu there. So. You can definitely still find a lot of great information at the UFO Norway website. So now you've been doing this for like 20 years or more, really. Do you think that we're ever going to get an answer to this UFO enigma, or are we going to be searching for results and, and the, the solution to this puzzle for forever? I think we will be searching forever. There will always be unknown, uh, unknown phenomena to, to, to investigate. But we already have a partly answer to, to the UFO phenomenon. It is most likely, in my opinion, uh, most likely not just one single phenomenon we are investigating, and we are probably investigating a lot, a lot of different uh, phenomena, collectively known as UFOs. But we already have uh, some of those phenomena accepted by science, because you have probably heard about uh, these um, these lightnings going up upwards from uh, from high altitude clouds, called sprites, and uh, so on. Mm -hmm. They were they were observed during the 1980s from aircraft, and these reports were called UFOs at that time. And these phenomena were not accepted until they were uh, filmed and photographed from uh, from the space shuttle. So now they are not UFOs, but they are natural phenomena. These kind of phenomena, and, and we probably have a few more of those uh, phenomena in in the UFO archives of uh, all, all countries, I think. Yeah. Probably ball lightning and other kind of uh, kind of phenomena. Other than uh, your your cooperative stuff going on with UFO Sweden, anything big on the horizon from UFO Norway that uh, people should be keeping an eye out for or get excited about? Well, I'm try I'm uh, currently writing a history of uh, of a project Hestholm. There will probably be some uh, some revelations there. We're also continuing to uh, to scanning uh, newspaper microfilm from 1946 and, and forward because. I think it's uh, pretty surprising that no one has, uh, has ever done that before. So we are I'm doing that to mainly to to get uh, an overview of uh, what has happened before and to uh, sort of learn from history. Exactly, exactly. What kind of revelations do you expect in the Project Hestelin book? <laughs> Give me a little teaser. Give uh, me a little taste of what might be might be coming out. Well, I, I, I'm I'm trying to argue that. Uh, Many of the reports from Hestalen were actually uh, of uh, conventional and mundane objects. Uh-oh, you better watch out, dude. You're going to get a lot of angry Norwegian <laughs> ufologists after you. Uh, I expect to uh, sort of step on a few foot along <laughs> that way, unfortunately. But uh, I know if I don't do it, then somebody else would eventually do it. So... Exactly. Sometimes you know you're not doing a good job in the UFO world if you're not upsetting someone 
else in the UFO world, so it probably is uh, a sign that you're doing uh, the proper thing, if you know what I mean. <laughs> well, I know it's getting pretty late over there in Norway, so we should probably uh, head towards the close here, Ola. I just want to thank you in a big way here for coming on the show, your first American radio interview ever. I know you were a little nervous about your English, but I think you did great, and I'm sure the BOA Audio listeners really enjoyed this conversation and this look at the world of UFO studies and the UFO phenomenon in Norway. Ola Jona Brana, director of UFO Norway, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for taking time out of your busy schedule to uh, appear on BOA Audio and uh, give us your first American radio interview ever. I'm really honored and thrilled that you would come on the program. Thanks again. I'm looking forward to keeping in touch with you and uh, keeping an eye on what's going on over there in Norway with regards to the UFO phenomenon. Well, thank you for having me on, uh, on, on your show. It was, uh, it was a pleasure being here. Well, that does it for this week's edition of BOA Audio Season 5. Big, big, super huge thanks to Ola Jona Brenna, director of UFO Norway for an enlightening look at the world of Norwegian ufology. I sure learned a lot. I hope the BOA Audio listeners did as well. For those folks who are trying to follow along on some of those links, here they are again. Hestelin.org is the website for Project Hestelin. That's spelled H-E-S-S-D-A-L-E-N.org. Check that out for info on Project Hestelin. And for Oleona Brenna's comprehensive report on Norwegian UFO photos, go to www.ufo.no slash files slash norway.pdf. That's a long one, so I'll do it again for you. Grab a pen. Here it comes. www.ufo.no slash files slash norway.pdf. And ultimately, you want to check out the website for UFO Norway. That's www.ufo.no got to be the easiest website we've ever had here on the show www.ufo.no that's the ufo norway website check all those out for more info from ola jona brenna director of ufo norway moving right along now it's time for boa audio listener feedback and i'm happy to report that i took a good two three hours earlier this week and dived into the boa inbox responded to a ton of emails collated a bunch Set aside several emails for future editions of BOA Audio listener feedback. This week here, we're going to do two emails. One is kind of nostalgic, and the other one is a BOA suggestion. So we'll just dive right into the mailbag here with the first one. It comes from Kimberly, no hometown listed, just Kimberly. And here's what she has to say. When I first met Stanton Friedman, it was in the mid-1970s. It was a UFO conference in Chicago at, I think, the Congress Hotel. I talked my dad into driving me all the way there. I think I purchased a newsletter from him across a fold-up table, and he made change out of a repurposed cigar box. Signed, Kimberly. I don't have much to say to that, really. Just thought it was a very cool email, kind of a neat look back at what it might have been like back then in the 1970s. Stan Friedman hanging around at the Congress Hotel in Chicago, giving UFO lectures, selling newsletters from fold-up tables, repurposed cigar boxes. What a world it must have been. I wish I could have been a fly on the wall at that sort of gathering. Thought I'd share it here with the BOA Audio listeners. Kind of gave me a smile as we were getting feedback from the folks who checked out the 5th Annual BOA Audio Holiday Special with Stanton Friedman. Surprisingly, I actually got a few different emails along the same lines as Kimberly's email. So there was a certain sense of 
reminiscence in the air this year on the holiday special. So that's really cool. Thanks for writing in, Kimberly. I appreciate it. I hope the BOA Audio listeners did too. Just close your eyes a little bit and think about that email and imagine what it must have been like back then. Really uh, pretty cool stuff. Our next email comes from Merely a Friend. That's how he signed the email, so we're going to presume that he wants to remain relatively anonymous. And here's what our friend has to say. I'm a short-time follower of the show. I have a suggestion for you. Instead of only relying on PayPal for donations, you should consider allowing for other methods of payment. For instance, you should get a P.O. box. That way people can send you cash. If you don't get a P.O. box, just make sure the cash is sent to an address other than your own. Think of it as a little tith jar. Nowadays, many people are concerned about identity theft. Others may be older, and so on. There have been many times where I thought I'd throw Tim a tenor, but then I thought, no way, not through the net. Too many problems. Think of it like tapping into another market. You may be surprised. Happy New Year. Signed, a friend. And despite what some of you more cynical listeners out there might think, I did not secretly write this email. This actually came from a real BOA Audio listener. Thank you, my friend. Uh... For writing in, I really appreciate the suggestion. I've considered the P.O. Box route, and I've gotten a few emails from people who wanted to send stuff to me via snail mail, and I am very hesitant to give out my home address. My main concern with that really is just wondering if it's going to be cost-effective. I'm going to have to check out how much it would really cost to get a P.O. Box, because I don't want to rent out a P.O. Box and then end up being in the lurch here because we didn't round up enough donations to make it worthwhile. Now, I'm just going to sort of throw this out there to folks. You don't have to commit to a donation, but if a P.O. box is something that would entice you to make a donation because you don't want to deal with the whole Internet scene, just let me know, and, uh, you know, maybe if the interest is there, we'll do it. But I'm kind of on the fence. If I go down and check it out and it costs 5 bucks, then, you know, we'll definitely do it. But I'm afraid, knowing the post office, that it's going to cost an arm and a leg. So I'll check it out and... Folks who this sort of interests them and they might want to make a donation via P.O. Box, uh, send me an email. It's not a commitment. You don't have to do it. So don't feel like this is a call for donations in that sense. This is just sort of a gauge of interest. And having a P.O. Box also could open us up to receiving snail mail of all different varieties. So it could be a bonus in that regard as well, not just with donations. Very interesting email from our friend planting the seed with this suggestion. Definitely something I've considered in the past, but really kind of gave me a little bit of a kick in the butt to turn this issue over to the BOA Audio listeners here at the end and see what they have to say about the uh, P.O. Box concept. And with that, for now, we close up the BOA Audio listener feedback mailbag. I've got a ton of emails still in waiting to be featured here on BOA Audio Listener Feedback, but of course we always need more. I always want to hear from the BOA Audio listeners. I want your feedback on the show. Positive, negative, constructive criticism, I need to hear it all. That way we can make the most well-rounded and coolest show out there for all the great listeners to the program. How to get in touch with me? That's really simple, and I'll go through the options for you right now. For starters, you can go to banalofamerica.com and click the contact button. If you don't want to do that, you can simply write to boaaudio at hotmail.com. And the third method is a little more interactive. It's the official BOA forum, the US of E.com, T H E U S O F E.com. Totally free, great community there. We've got a lot of fun stuff going on. Right now is the NFL playoff predictions contest. So if you're a big NFL fan and a big BOA audio listener, 
you want to join up at theusofe.com and post your picks for the NFL playoffs. Winner gets a shout-out on the first BOA Audio episode after the Super Bowl. Lots of fun, exciting stuff there. I know there's going to be a lot of trash talk as well. So those are the three methods, email, contact button, and the official BOA forum, theusofe.com. Use those means, use those methods, and shoot me an email and have your voice heard, not just here at the end of the program, but throughout the halls of BOA HQ. Up next, of course, it is time to thank the amazing, infamous, and esteemed BOA staff, Leslie, Chiron, Regan Lee, Joe V, Tina Senna, Rochelle Hawks, Richard Thomas, A.M. Murphy, Marla Pena, our contributing cartoonist, Andy Carolin, and our webmaster, Jeremy Boston. Top to bottom, they are just doing tremendous work for Banal of America. Their vacation is over, and they're hitting the ground running here on 2010. Let me give you a little look at what has been posted at BOA so far here in the new year. Regan Lee broke the seal on 2010 with her column, Trickster's Realm, this time around titled Precursors to Contact, Early Sightings of Contactees. Looking at the UFO sightings of the contactee folks, amazing stuff, compelling information from Regan Lee. This one's definitely already creating quite a buzz online. Way to start out the new year, Regan Lee. Precursors to Contact, Early Sightings of Contactees. If you haven't read this one at Been All of America, folks, you are totally missing out. Check that one out. And then on Tuesday, Leslie returned from vacation with her column, Gray Matters, this time around under the title, Bigfoot Thoughts. Looking at the Bigfoot phenomenon from a whole bunch of different angles. Fun article, definitely one that will give you some food for thought and make you consider the mysterious Bigfoot enigma from a bunch of different angles. As always, Leslie looks at things from her own unique perspective and brings up some thought-provoking points. And finally, so far, up until this week's episode, we've also got Andy Carollin's webcomic Disclosure. This week's strip is titled Office Closure, and it covers the UK MOD UFO desk being closed down and ties it in to Andy Carollin's Disclosure universe. Hilarious stuff from Andy. you got to check out Disclosure. It gives me a chuckle every time I read it. That's a BOA right now as well. So three new things here to start out the new year. Plus, we've got Shadow of the Shinigami coming up later on this week from Marla Pena. And Medusa's Ladder from Rochelle Hawks on Friday. Plus, next week, if the schedule holds up, we've got Tina Senna with Esotericana on Monday. A.M. Murphy makes her big return to BOA with Not Always So on Wednesday. And Richard Thomas joins us on Friday with an all-new Room 101. We say it week in and week out here, folks, but I don't think it's any more apparent than here as we start 2010. If you're only listening to Banal of America and you're not reading the columns at BOA, you're only getting half the story. We're not just a podcast series, my friends. BOA Audio only drops once a week, but there's always something cooking at Banal of America thanks to the outstanding BOA staff. And if you're new to the scene and you don't know the URL for Banal of America, let me give it to you right now. It is simply www.binnallofamerica.com. We already kind of beat the donation horse to death earlier with the listener feedback. I'm not going to keep asking you for donations, folks. I'll just say, hey, it's a whole new year. I know times are tough still, my friends. I haven't talked about it much here at the end of the show this season. Trying to put the financial crisis behind us even though the real world is also sort of beating us down with it still. I like to think and hope 
that things are turning the corner. I'm getting the sense from some folks that it is. But I know that a lot of folks out there are definitely still hurting, and I don't want them to go hungry because they want to make a donation to Banal of America. So be responsible with your money, my friends. But I know there are some folks out there who do have some disposable income. They're doing all right, and they haven't made a donation to BOA lately or ever at all. And those are the folks we turn to right now and ask, simply, please help us out. Please make a donation. Anything you can throw our way would be hugely appreciated and go a long way to helping to stave off the bills that are accumulated by Banal of America and BOA Audio. How do you make a donation? That's simple. You go to banalofamerica.com and you click the PayPal button. There's one right on the home page and the audio archive page. No donation is too small and all donations go towards Banal of America and BOA Audio to help keep the website and the audio series up and running, freely available, and commercial free for all of our great readers and listeners the world over. We're almost done here for the week, my friends. Let me tell you what's coming up next week on the program. I haven't edited the episode yet, so I can't give you a point-by-point, blow-by-blow account of what's coming up, but I can definitely tease that it is an excellent edition of BOA Audio. We're going to be examining the elusive trickster phenomenon with cutting-edge esoteric researcher Christopher O'Brien, We'll be delving into his recent book, Stalking the Trickster, and try and wrap our hands around this mysterious force, which he believes may be behind many a paranormal phenomenon. As I said, I can't really give you a blow-by-blow detailing of what you're going to hear next week on the show, but I can tell you this. When I hung up the phone after we taped this interview, I knew that we had just recorded an amazing conversation and a really thought-provoking look at a truly mind-bending phenomenon that is the trickster. I know for sure that we're going to get a ton of feedback on this one because I enjoyed the conversation tremendously and it had me thinking for days afterwards. It is certainly an episode you do not want to miss. Christopher O'Brien stalking the trickster next week on BOA Audio. And on that note, we'll close the book on this week's edition of BOA Audio. Once again, big thanks to Ole Jona Brenna for coming on the show and sharing so much information about the Norwegian UFO scene. And of course, thanks to Klaus Svahn and Klaus Jaeger for helping to put this whole thing together. But most of all, we got to give huge thanks to you folks out there, the amazing BOA Audio listeners. I wouldn't be doing this show if not for you. I heap platitudes on you here at the end of the show every week because I don't know any other way to say how much I appreciate your support of this program. Thank you once again for making BOA Audio a part of your esoteric audio playlist. Until next time, this is Tim Benall, thanking you for listening and signing off.